Hi, I'm Barry Norman, and I'm on Misery Point Radio. What are you on? Thanks for joining me again on Misery Point Radio. Not gonna lie, I was getting a little lonely and depressed, thinking that I'd lost you forever. But no, here we are, together, again. I'm at a loss for words. I will spare you my true feelings, though, because nobody needs that level of emotional diarrhea. But what I can provide you is a 100% pure, uncut, unadulterated, unsanitized entertainment enema. You don't have to thank me. I'm totally happy to purge you of all your impurities. Well, now that we've established my new role in the universe, let's talk about today's guest, who is probably writing a letter of termination to his agent right about now. But that's all right. Who needs agents? I mean, I don't have one. And look at me. All right. No, don't look at me. Anyway, today's guest is an upstanding gentleman, a filmmaker and author by the name of Barry Norman. Barry and I had an epic stream of consciousness style conversation about his various roles in the entertainment business over the years as a radio show host, a record label representative, and of course, a filmmaker and an author. Barry had so many awesome experiences that led to so many great stories, we didn't even begin to crack the surface. Stories about the early days of a little known band named Nirvana, how one of his artists, some dude named David Bowie or something, may have intentionally tanked the record label he was working for, and how he came to cross paths with the creator of the Toxic Avenger himself, Lloyd Kaufman. And of course, the other crazy life experiences that became fodder for his literary masterpieces. Honestly, just too much to talk about in such a short time span. If you're a fan of listening to stories about the crazy paths that life can sometimes take you on, then stick around and listen to us go down a ton of random rabbit holes. So put on your flannel, tie up your chucks, and welcome to Misery Point Radio, filmmaker and author, Barry Norman. All right. Hey, Barry, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Mike. How you doing? I'm, uh, all things considered, with all the craziness, doing doing pretty well. Uh, how about yourself? How are you holding up over there on the East Coast? Uh, not bad. Like I said, spending uh, copious times by myself is just something I'm kind of used to. And I, <laughs> I, I take a lot of walks. And the good thing is people are still not walking where I live in Gloucester. So it's I, I can't really tell the difference. Yeah. Gloucester. I love those English words that you really don't quite know how to pronounce them. And you hope you're pronouncing them right, like Worcester. Is it Worcester? Is it Gloucester? But yeah, well, you got to hit it with the Boston accent too. It's Gloucester. <laughs> it's Gloucester. Yeah, I've got relatives over in Rhode Island, so uh, not too far from uh, from that style of speech for sure. Uh, it, the R's go where they don't belong, and then you leave them out where they do belong, like uh, Havid and Toyota. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's yeah. it. so but you're doing all right over there Not, things aren't too crazy you're uh you're surviving uh getting by so so that's good yeah well actually since uh, I'm, i've taken to writing the last few years it's it's actually been enhancing that because it's all i can really do yeah well you so got I've been, I've been fooling around writing things and, and working on a couple books that i've written i wrote uh, mostly last year try to get them out so yeah it's, it's it's been fine i've been i hate to say i'm enjoying this because that's not really true but it's not really been a major no uh, part no in infringement yeah. on, on what i normally do 
Awesome. Well, you brought up your writing. We're definitely going to spend some time talking about that. And as I've become familiar with kind of you and what you do, and by the way, shout out to our mutual friend, Steve Joyner, for hooking this up. Um, Thank you, Steve. I'm really digging in and I'm finding out just how varied your career in the entertainment industry is. I mean, we're talking radio work, film work, writing, uh, working with the WCW, you know, doing some record label stuff, just kind of all over the place. So what I'd love to do is let's just start from the beginning, man. How did you get going in the entertainment industry? It, it actually started with my best friend and I were hated our current jobs. I was uh, selling direct mail advertising and he was managing an apartment. Uh, actually, not man, he was a super at a, at a decent apartment complex in Brooklyn Heights. Um, and we were both saying we hated it. What did we want to do? And we both decided we we're both passionate about music. And how do you get into the music business? And I saw an ad in the back of Rolling Stone. So you want to get into the music business. So we, we looked that up and it was a school called the Music Business Institute, MBI, uh, part of uh, you know, the art institutes. And this was fairly new. And we checked into it and they had these you know, great equipment, 24 track studios. They had a half ton truck full of all the equipment. If you want to do live sound uh, for, for concerts, they taught you radio promotion, everything. We checked out everything except if they actually can get you a job in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was $12,000 for a year. We said, yeah, let's do that. So we go, um, I was actually living in Florida. He was living in New York. We then moved to Atlanta where it was. We thought, well, the music business in the South is based in Atlanta. We did uh, know the year course and found out they really had no clout whatsoever. Now, it also taught television production for MTV, and I kind of gravitated towards TV. Uh, My friend Bruce still wanted to be in the music business. We were actually older than virtually everyone else in the class. I was uh, 29. (laughs) He was 37. It was rock and roll high school. Yeah, right. I I mean, I mean, the the first day where they went around the room, what do you want to know? What do you want to be? I want to be Bruce Springsteen's live sound man. All right. What do you want to be? I want to be a top no engineer and and producer. That really wasn't going to happen. He actually, at the end of the course, he actually did get a job uh, for a promotion for a small record label. And he moved back to to New York uh, working for Grudge Records. And I actually got a job with CNN. I mean, the only television company in the country that's that would hire people with virtually no experience. I mean, the, the TV production I did there, it gave me enough that I knew a little bit about it. But they, they hired people because they knew they weren't paying you anything. Oh, right. And if, if you try to get a job anywhere else in television for one of the major networks out of New York for an affiliate, which is almost all a union, you weren't getting it. So I got the job at CNN. This is uh, no, uh, February 1988. And this is part of Turner Broadcasting. So Turner Broadcasting has all kinds of other divisions. And they would have postings on their bulletin board for any other jobs in the company. And uh, I, I moved on to CNN Sports as, as a production assistant, which was fun. But there was everyone wanted to be a field producer. Now, the guy they sent to the Super Bowl, to the World Series. And the, guy, and the two guys that had that job weren't leaving it. So, so you weren't going anywhere from a production system. So I was, I walked by the the bulletin board one day, and it said, "No, for uh, World Championship Wrestling, Public Relations Manager." I go, "Okay, it's a management division, so that's good. So it's going to pay more." Uh, WCW, it's live, uh, no television, syndicated television, pay-per-views, uh, merchandising, all kinds of stuff. I thought it would be creative, so I turned out to be the only person you know, uh, who applied for that job. So that's how I, I got it in, into WCW. And WCW, as a publicist, uh, the guy there uh, that was the executive vice president, he came from Pizza Hut. 
<laughs> he had no knowledge of wrestling, didn't care about wrestling. His, you no, know, a friend of his was, uh, his division was ahead of WCW. So we hired this guy, Jim Hurt, and he was great for me. He goes, uh, he, he looked and sounded like a longshoreman. So the first day I met him, he goes, Barry, I have no idea what a publisher for wrestling does. Do whatever you want to do. So I got to get creative. I, I got, I mean, I, as I got more and more used to the job and got a better Rolodex, I was able to cast guys in TV shows, get uh, guys cast in, uh, in movies like uh, Teenage Mutant at uh, Ninja Turtles Part 2. I got to speak to Vincent Price on the phone one day because they asked me to, uh, we used to have Elvira. Uh, she was always uh, the person that uh, did our promos for our, our Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. And she did it like four years in a row. So they come to me and go, Barry, get us Vincent Price. Okay, I mean, I finally tracked down his um, his agent, and one day I get a call on the phone. I go, "Is this Barry Norman? <laughs> this is Vincent. I mean, the voice." And then he starts apologizing, says his health won't allow him to do it, and he's going on and on about how glad he was that I thought of him. And I'm going, "Oh my God, this is Vincent Price yeah, apologizing right. to me." So, uh, but so WCW was a was a cool gig. It got me to doing a lot of things, but the music kind of still was there. So once again, one weird looking in the back of a magazine, uh, looking to get in the music business. I get into television. My friend gets into music, but every day we used to talk on the phone. Uh, he'd call me like at ten o'clock, and we continued to talk about the music industry. And around 1990, 91, he and I both noticed some strange things you know, going on on um, Top 40 Radio that a couple of bands that came through college radio, uh, EMF and Jesus Jones, had the number one hit. One had it in late 1991, had it in 1991. And we started hearing that other bands and artists that you would never hear on a Top 40 you know, contemporary hit radio station that in, in 1991 was mostly disposable dance music. Like CNC Music Factory. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So we're seeing this trend. So I'm I'm working in, in my you know public relations uh, gig, and and he's you know working for this small label, Grudge Records. But we're noticing certain trends uh, in the music industry. We said, what what if this is something that we can actually get on top of? I mean, I still always had a love for music industry, and and he's in it, and we're talking about this thing. And over the next you know couple months, we came up with an idea. What if we create a nationally syndicated radio show for? We hated the term, but you know what it is: alternative music. <laughs> so, yeah, because what does that mean? Alternative to what? But that's what it was. You no, know, they finally dubbed it that. Um, so we we said if we can create a format that we can put it on AOR, you no know, album-oriented rock radio, which is obviously mostly classic that was when you got beatles stones the who led zeppelin sure and then chr chr is contemporary hit radio or top 40 that was the billboard no no top 40 hits so this so more of these artists could actually get their way on those formats without completely wrecking the format because they're not going to take them on you know add them put them into light medium heavy airplay so we're talking about this and then another weird thing happened to me in wrestling I got a call one day out of the uh, blue from this guy um, named John Silva. And he says, I uh, know he's a huge uh, no WCW fan. We have some house shows coming up in areas that, are, that he's going to be traveling to, like Knoxville, Tennessee. Can he get some no comp tickets? And he said, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm a band manager. And I didn't even think to ask him what bands he managed or anything like that. Our house shows, back then, uh, WCW wasn't no no kicking ass like it did a few years later. Right. Uh, our house shows never, I mean, the house shows is just the, the, the shows in the small towns where we had a syndicated radio, uh, syndicated TV show 
that was part of the contract. If, if we got a station to play our syndicated you know, shows, we had to be there for the live show to promote, to cross promote. So I comped him for a whole bunch of, uh, of these shows that he asked for. And then one day I get um, a package in the mail uh, addressed to me at my WCW office and it's from him. And it's uh, Nirvana's Nevermind CD. This is before it was released. Damn. So Damn. I, I listened to this and I said, oh my God, the lid is going to blow off this thing. This, this thing is going to change everything. And if we're not doing something now, I said, we're, we're, we'll have waited too late. So I called my friend. I said, I just heard this band, Nirvana. I said, we've got to, we, we got to find a way to get our, our, um, our show together. We have to make a demo. So I called John Silva and said, can you get me an interview? Can, I, can we interview Nirvana? And he said, I'll see if I can set that up. And he did. He set it up for uh, Friday, January 10th, 1992. The, the night before they were going to be on Saturday Night Live. So, so they're definitely on the upswing. So they're definitely one of the bit, you know, people are starting to really hear about them. They're starting to make some noise. So we get an interview with, uh, with them. Uh, my friend Bruce in New York, he actually had a friend who worked for Billboard, and he started getting some interviews with bands like, you know, with like Michael Hutchins of NXS. Uh, we got uh, um, uh, uh, David Lowry of Cracker. These are some of the bands that were starting to filter in. We make the demo and we actually get a syndicator interested in us, a syndicator called Super Radio. And so now we actually have a company that's going to, you know, we can produce the show and distribute it. At the same time, my job at WCW got eliminated. It got uh, eliminated? It got eliminated. Or you they, got eliminated. Uh, no, well, I got eliminated. My well, here's what happened there. <laughs> Since you brought it up, uh, they fired Jim Hurd, you know, the executive vice president, and the, the guy that hired him, you know, who was his superior, he didn't know who, how to interview. I mean, Jim Hurd was his friend from Pizza Hut. So he goes around to the, to the company in TBS, hey, who wants to be the new executive vice president of WCW? And this, like, fifth grade lawyer raises his hand, I'll do it. So he becomes a new executive vice president, and after, you know, two weeks, he, I finally get a meeting with him. I've been asking to meet with them. And he goes, okay, Barry, I want you to set up a press conference. We have this uh, pay-per-view coming up in Kansas City, and I want, a, you know, uh, I, I want a, a press conference. And I go, oh, God, I knew what he wanted. He wanted to be at the lectern with a thousand media representatives, all with TV cameras and microphones, holding on to his every word because it's a big deal to him. Right. And I said, it's not going to happen. I said, the, the mainstream press that covers wrestling are not going to send someone to Kansas City because they don't cover it that way. It's not that big a deal. They they do some stuff like some uh, like New York Daily News covered wrestling, uh, um, the Miami Herald, and then there was the wrestling writers that were you know, they were poor. no one was sending them. And he said, "I'm the executive vice president of a Turner Broadcasting Division. So you know, they'll be there." So I twisted every arm I could, and I got three people. To show up in this big conference room. He had you no know, food and drink that he figured was going to be for a couple hundred people. So a week later, that's when my position got eliminated. But the good thing is, is that we had this deal for you no know, for the syndicated show. I would have to move to New York anyway if I'm going to produce it with my friend. So that's how I ended up, you know, uh, getting actually into the music industry from I guess a left turn from being in the, in the Music Business Institute for a year. So I moved to New York, so, so my friend and I can actually produce this show. Um, part of the deal that the, the syndicator said is we had to clear New York radio. And we did. We cleared, uh, um, we cleared WNEW, which was the oldest AOR station in the country. So they're the one that actually created the format of classic rock. 
and they gave us Monday night at 9 p.m., which and they kicked out their their Led Zeppelin show, Get the Lead Out. And and by this time, my friend Bruce was working for a, a new record label called Savage Records, and he got me a job there because I mean, otherwise I was on a, unemployment trying to live in New York City. Sure. So he got me a job there as his assistant. He was the head of East Coast promotion, so I'm his no his his butt boy. <laughs> but still, I have a job at a record label that David Bowie assigned to. And and Gene loves Jezebel, you know, so so that's cool. So I'm you know I'm able to meet David Bowie and Gene loves Jezebel, and we're producing the show, and uh, we're we're getting rave reviews from all uh, from all the stations that we're on. I mean, my friend and I we cleared ourselves New York, Baltimore, and Hartford, and then the syndicator is supposed to do the rest. And the way you get paid in syndication, whether it's TV or radio, you have to clear 80% of the major markets: New York, Dallas, LA, Chicago. And just for definition's sake. What do you mean when you refer to clearing a market? In other words, they have you have to get an away station in one of those major markets to take your show. Okay. So to do that, they're obviously eliminating an hour programming. And then the way it works is we get 60% of the national advertising and the local station will get 40%. They take syndicated shows because they think this is a show that we don't have the, the means to make. It's going to get higher ratings than what we can get, which means even though we're only getting 40% of the ad buys, It'll be higher. Plus, you know, the lead-in show is going to get higher ratings, the show that comes after. So you have to have a show that's good enough that all these major markets are going to want. And some of the major markets are actually going to charge you. In other words, they're going to, if you want to get on New York Radio, to get on WNEW, besides taking one of their uh, DJs, one of the top DJs, Carol Miller, to be one of our co-hosts of the show, we actually had to pay them $750 a week. <laughs> no, to clear that market. This is this is how it works. I mean, you don't have to do it for a lot of markets, but a, a New York and L.A. that says, yeah, you want you want an hour of our airtime. No, we're we're losing money. They're not. If, you know, if the show does well enough, they're actually going to make more money. But they can do this. But that's how we clear New York, and and uh, and um, I cleared Orlando uh, station there, WXXL. So. The show's going well because we're on New York radio. Any artist we want to talk to, the record label is letting us talk to. We 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 interviewed Lou Reed the night after he performed with a U2 when they performed. Uh, they did one of his songs, "Satellite of Love." Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, we anyone we wanted to talk to, anyone that we wanted to interview, we got um, the the uh, MTV 120 Minutes tour. They had a, a PIL with you no know, Johnny Rotten. Um, Ed Kowalczyk of Live. I mean, anyone we wanted to interview, you know, we got. So this is this is part of our show to introduce acts that either been around for a while, but are now are getting, you know, um, they're now actually starting to filter into you no know, top forty radio. So the show is actually my friend and I are, are figuring out where we're we're getting better at it every single week, and every single week we ask Super Radio uh, how many stations to declare because obviously we can't get the money until we're at eighty percent. Right. So every week they go, oh, we got you 20 more stations this week. We got 30 more this week. So we go, wow, we're kicking ass. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and, and we're getting written up by, uh, like Billboard said, this new show, Cross Currents, is really going to uh, know, help promote you know, the, the modern rock, the alternative the music thing. Uh, R&R, Radio and Records, and what another one of the big um, trade. So we're doing really well. We think we're doing great. After, after seven weeks of doing the show, we, we keep on getting a list. Of, we never got a list of the stations that are cleared. So we finally had to get our lawyer to force them to divulge what stations have you cleared? How close are we to getting to that 80% threshold? Finally, they, re uh, they, they released a list. It's, it has like Wenatchee, Washington, Redding, California, Milledgeville, Georgia. A bunch of nothing stations. I know those. I mean, we could be on a thousand of those, and you're not going to get national advertising. 
we then found out that they were actually for sale. They added our show just to increase the sale price. It goes, hey, we got this hip alternative music show. And meanwhile, they're not working it. It's their job to you know they they have obviously a lot of contacts with these big stations because they have other shows. Right. You know, that that they right. that they have you no know, four, five, six hundred stations cleared for. They're not doing anything. They're not doing their their diligence. Sometimes it takes a lot of work to get a station to finally okay, I'm, I'll, I'll take your show. Here's a time slot. Then they have to negotiate that. I mean, if it's a four a.m. time you no know, time slot, and, and, you know, it's it's not going to do any good. So. We, like I said, the, the cost of producing this show, besides the seven fifty a week that we had to pay, we had to pay you know, uh, the, the two uh, you know, hosts. We, we had Carol Miller, and I wasn't happy that just Carol Miller, because she was a, you know, a classic rock DJ on WNEW, so I convinced Dave Kendall, who at that time was hosting MTV's 120 Minutes, you know, their alternative music show. So he gave us credibility. And when I, when, I pitched, uh, when I pitched it to him, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do this, Joe. So we had to pay his salary, we had to pay Carol's salary, and we had the top engineer in the business. So that, so we had some costs. I, I did get free studio time. Um, I, I convinced a, a studio uh, um, that only did uh, no, a rap and hip hop. And they decided that, okay, well, if we had this alternative music show, and at the end of the show, we would give them a shout out. That said, maybe they would get some of these new acts and alternative music. So there was, you no, know, they gave us this little studio they that they weren't using, but we free studio time. Hell, hell yeah. Week. yeah. No, and no, uh, Spin Magazine gave us you no know, free uh, free ads every week because we also had to say, you no, know, uh, we're 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 compiling our research from Spin Magazine. So we we had some cool elements that were uh, no, were, were pro bono, but it was still costing us. So after twelve weeks only, we had to we had to stop the show because it was costing us you know a couple of thousand dollars a week and we didn't have any money in so but it did um as i mentioned to you uh two of the bands that we actually added on our show actually got broke by the show um i, I mentioned the uh, live and four non-blondes mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. since uh, our show was on new york radio and this is kind of why what we thought the show could do that some radio stations are hearing music that normally wouldn't be pitched or wouldn't ever add on to their playlist WNEW did add live and four knob blondes after they heard it on our show, and it, it started going higher and higher as far as you no know, light, uh, airplay, medium, heavy, and then other markets. Because every music director or program director, when you're if you're the the promo guy trying to pitch them a song or a uh, note to, to play to add to their playlist, the first thing they say is, "Oh, we don't. We only care what's going on in our market." The second thing they say is, "Where else is it playing?" Right. And if, and if you say you have New York. That's a big deal. So, you no know, live and four non-blondes actually, you know, charted and did pretty well because we put them on one of our our weekly shows that WNE and WNEW did. Yeah. So that was the four. It, it didn't last long. It was only three months, but no, it, it was the first time people technically outside of the music business. My friend worked for a label, but that didn't really count. All syndicated shows are either uh, a syndicator like Super Radio finds a local act like a Howard Stern was a, a local radio you know, DJ. And then a syndicator says, wow, we think this guy's good. We're going to syndicate him. Or the syndication companies develop their own show. We heard that all the big syndicators were you know, developing a, an alternative music show. And then when they heard, you know, that's what, at least what they told us when we were pitching all the syndicators to take us. And we knew we had a we had a strike quickly, so we actually got the deal, and then the deal turned out to be the bad one because they screwed us. <laughs> no, the, I mean, it was the right. No, the, it was obviously the right time for it. We think the format. We think our show is pretty good. 
I mean, we, we did some you know, some pretty, I mean, once again, we were very, very creative. Uh, we get we had some programmers calling us the day after the show aired in their market, you know, saying how um, how great some of the segments were. Um, are you familiar with Bob Vila? Remember when he had that TV show? <laughs> Home Improvement stuff, House? yeah. So I came up with an idea. We were going to have this one set where the first song was going to be uh, Madness, Our House, even though that was an 80s song, but it kind of set the tone of what the segment was going to be. The next song was from a band that I really liked that was just starting to break a little bit called The Kitchens of Distinction. And then we were going to end the set with a song from In Spiral Carpets. So we had Our House, you know, Kitchens of Distinction, In Spiral Carpets. I said, what if we can get Bob Vila to do the front and back announce for that segment? So once again, from my from my WCW Rolodex, I was able. I had all kinds of managers and things like that, and I tracked down his manager. I had his number. I called him up, and and he puts and he puts Bob Beal on the phone, and he goes, and I told him what kind of show it was. He goes, so my kids will think I'm cool if I do this. <laughs> and I go, yeah, of course they will. So we did it for nothing. I mean, I sent him the script, you know, and and, and he did the front announce for for this one segment. You know, we come out of the break and he goes, hi, this is Bob Bila. Welcome to this old uh, uh, cross currents. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. And he announced, no, those three songs front and back announced. And it was hilarious. So little things like that we try to do. In other words, Kiss and Distinction and Inspiral Carpets weren't getting a lot of airplay. So how do you present that material to people where they're not going to you know, shut your show up, make it kind of fun and different? So that's some of the stuff that we did you know, that, was, that, that made the show what should have been a big success you know, only last three months. Yeah, well, you were kind yeah. of a victim of circumstance, sadly. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, unfortunately, we both failed. We, we got really good at this show. I mean, yeah. we, we, we really, I mean, we, we both, I, we think we're, we're picking, you know, artists that a lot of people haven't heard before. I mean, some artists still, I mean, unfortunately they didn't break. You, you can't predict everything, but we think every song and every artist we pick at least should have been, and it still made the shows interesting. Like, so we got great uh, um, interviews with, I mean, like I mentioned Dave Lowry with Cracker. We got him, he was in a phone booth, you know, in Bakersfield, California, and somehow we got crosstalk with trucker CV, you know, CVs. <laughs> Which actually made it more interesting right. when, when you're hearing him talk with all with all that in the background. It's kind of like Spinal so, Tap. Yeah. So I mean, so it was the it was the right idea at the right time. Just the the, the syndicator that you know, picked us up. And we were so excited. I mean, we were we originally were courted by um, the first radio syndicator in the business, a company called uh, No uh, DIR, which stood for Digit Radio. They did the the one of the first syndicated radio show called the King Biscuit Flower Hour which was live concerts. You know, King Biscuit was actually a flower company, so they were the sponsor. And the guy that uh, headed up DIR was a guy called Bob Meyerwitz. And he was sued by every band because he basically taped them illegally, put them in this show that made huge amounts of money. <laughs> and, and he was the first one you know, that we approached and says, yeah, I'll, t- I'll, no, I'll take your show. And then I fly up from Atlanta. I hadn't moved yet to sign the contract with them. And he says, oh, by the way, I'll own the show. And I realized if he owns it, we're employees, which means we can be fired at any moment. I said, I can't do that. He goes, well, I don't need you. I can call the show electric currents instead of cross currents. So we realized we were going to be screwed then. And that's when we you know, kept on pitching. And then Super Radio uh, picked us up. Bob Myers went on to start UFC. Yeah. So yeah. He, he made a zillion dollars doing that. He's, he's just, I mean, he's just one of those low lives that just keeps on falling up. <laughs> I mean, he had this huge radio show that he screwed. I mean, every band in the world no, ended up to know suing him. Right. Uh, and no, I don't know. I don't think any of them collected, but uh, but they, they, he was the first one that was interested in cross-current. So 
that was the foray into the music industry that should have no should have could have woulda uh, you know i mean i mean I, I we did get to interview some great artists like said so we i i got to talk to you know nirvana which was really really interesting because mm-hmm. kurt cobain is a fascinating character uh i could tell even then he could tell the trajectory of the band and he was already miserable yeah um, he was already communicating that uh, he, you know, he thought of himself as a hypocrite because all the people that are loving Nirvana were the people that used to beat him up in school. Exactly. And yeah. and he wasn't happy with that. And he said he they they they're, they're already this is their first big major label album. And he says I, he's he figured out he they, there's already a formula on us. You no, know, we start slow, then get you no, know, then start kicking ass, then go back to slow again. So he goes, we're we're probably not going to be able to stray from that. So he felt constrained. So I asked him, I said, why'd you do it? Why design the major label? You could have stayed on Sub Pop and been a regional band, probably not have to have second jobs, but you're never going to you know, play the stadiums. You're never going to play 20, 30, 40, 50,000. You're not going to be an MTV and you're not going to make a lot of money. I said, and I said, you, you obviously knew this could happen if you signed the major label contract. So why did you? And he didn't really have an answer for that because he was smart enough to know this could be, this, could, this is what could happen. So on the one hand, I don't feel too bad for him because he's extremely bright. And he knew that was probably, he, he, I think he knew this was going to be the thing. And I, and I don't know, I mean, we didn't get into it because you know, Chris Canova, Selleck and Dave Grohl were there. Maybe he felt the pressure that, well, these guys are, are loving this and how can I turn away from that? Sure. Just because it's not what sure. I wanted. So he was really interesting to talk to, very, very introspective, but it was it was hard to hear how miserable he already was because he knew where things were going. Yeah. That's uh, just crazy how things work out that way. I kind of want to backtrack for a minute, though, and you brought up Savage Records and you brought up David Bowie, and I wanted to kind of dive down that rabbit hole for a minute. So because you told me off the air when we were first chatting that there's a really interesting story about what happened with Savage Records because of David Bowie. Right. Uh, Savage Records was run by these two young kids from Jordan whose parents were uh, whose, uh, whose parents were like oil shakes with you no know, gazillion dollars. And they always wanted, I guess, run a record company. So their dad sure, gave them several million. Yeah, they gave them several million dollars, start a record company. So we had nice offices, no right, no right near uh, no Carnegie Hall and the Russian Tea Room. And the main you know, the, the first thrust of it was signing you no know, new artists. So we actually had a lot of good new artists. But if you're a new record label, once again, uh, even though Payola technically doesn't exist, it still <laughs> does. The, the way a lot of new artists get broken is the major label has these huge stars. And then they go to the, you know, uh, you know, to, to the, the radio stations. Hey, remember we had that Tom Petty you no know, concert in England? We flew two of your listeners in that contest you know, to England, put them up in a, in a five-star hotel, uh, took them backstage to meet Tom Petty. Remember that? We want you to put this guy on you know, in, in heavy rotation. So that's how you break new artists. So Savage Records had no, no artists like that, and they're not going to be able to create one of their new ones. So they said, we better sign some established artists. So they signed David Bowie. David Bowie hadn't had a hit in since 1982, Let's Dance. He had been fooling around with, you know, with Tin Machine for years. Um, Tin Machine was very, very avant-garde. I actually went to see Tin Machine before I worked for Savage Records, and that was with you know, uh, Soupy Sales, Sons, Hunt Sales, and Tony Sales. And I remember once uh, David Bowie is singing, and all of a sudden he starts being David Bowie. He catches himself and stops because it wasn't david bowie band he's just a singer he's not he's not he doesn't want tin machine to be david bowie right 
So, so he hadn't really had a hit. And I think, once again, kind of like Kurt Cobain, he kind of liked it that way. So he just got married to his supermodel wife, Iman, you know, before signing this label. And these kids from, you know, Jordan didn't know anything. But the guy that was head of promotion, uh, he came from a small label. He didn't know what he should have known. So David Bowie basically dictated everything. He says, okay. He says, uh, I'm not going to tour. I'm not going to do interviews. I'm not going to do anything like that. I'm going to pick the first single you no, know, off the album that I record. I said, yeah, I do want an MTV video. It's going to cost you a couple million dollars to do. And that's that. I'm on my honeymoon. And Savage Records said, okay. So they, they put together the, the album, uh, which was called uh, Black Tie, White Noise. And the first song David Bowie chose, he says, this will be the first relief, was a song called Jump, They Say, about suicide. <laughs> Not the best song to release when you know, your last biggest hits were all you know, the, you know, the music from Let's Dance. Right. It actually was a good song, and, and, the, and, and the, the video was, was brilliant, but this is not what you want to do to reintroduce David Bowie you know, to, to a large audience. And then that's when the record made the next uh, biggest mistake. They decided, and, and my friend and I pleaded with you know, the head of promotion not to do this, he wanted it to, re to release the AOR radio first. In other words, David Bowie is a classic artist. Let's release it to the classic stations first. Now, classic radio doesn't break artists. No, you have to go to, I mean, we, we argued, let's put him on college radio because he'll, because they don't care who, who you are. If, if they like it, they can play because they're non-commercial. That's where all the alternative artists were. You no, know, that's where the Cure and other bands like that, Red Hot Chili Peppers that were just now making mainstream hits that's where they that's where they made their living. They made the living on college radio, played you know, those type of towns, played those type of venues. So if you bring the college radio and it goes up the college radio chart, now you have success. You can go to uh, you no know, top 40 radio. Hey, it's burning up college radio charts. If you fail, if you if what your move fails, you don't get a second chance. It doesn't matter that it's David Bowie. So they tried to go to AOR radio. AOR radio wasn't interested. So what, So now you've, you've lost. In other words, it, we didn't get hardly anywhere with it. You have no place else to go. You can't now go to top 40. That's where the money is you know, to, get them, you know, to get them a top 40 hit, go to number one, because you have a failure. You know, okay, if, AO, if you couldn't make David Bowie work in AOR, why am I going to add that to my playlist? So with all the money that Savage Records spent on black tie, white noise, and doing everything that Bowie did, and once again, he's not doing uh, tour, he's not doing publicity, he's not uh, going going to radio, he's not doing anything. And then the label makes the big mistake of putting him out in the wrong format, and so the whole thing dies. The whole thing just killed, and that's what ended Savage Records, because they just didn't have another, their, their parents cut them off and said, here's your startup money, good luck. Yeah. And you know, we 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 like said we had a lot of good young artists that and they they thought that uh, David Bowie and the other artists that had some establishment was uh, Gene Loves Jezebel. Uh, I mean they they had um, you know a minor hit on College Radio years ago in Jealous. Yeah. Um, now one other funny thing that happened uh, at Savage Records is I accidentally got Mariah Carey a hit. Um, <laughs> We, we had this Australian uh, heavy metal band called Saints and Sinners you know, who, who were really, really bad. But their lead singer actually had you know, that good titanium-throated, no, uh, no heavy metal voice, and he had a look that I thought 14-year-old girls are going to love. He actually looked like you know, a Native American. He had long black hair, the tiny butt, the ones that the 14-year-old girls liked. 
and I said, why don't we, we why don't we remake you know, the Harry Nilsson uh, uh, song, you know, Without You, have him scream the chorus, just writhe and scream, make a video of, of, of him doing that, just writhing on the ground, screaming, I can't live. And I said, and then we can release that, you know, to Top 40, and, and, and the young girls are going to eat it up. And of course, the young boys, since it's, he's still you know, kind of a, you know, a metal-type singer, and the young girls like him. And the label said no. Now, one of the guys who was a consultant for the label was Frank DeLeo. He used to be Michael Jackson's manager. Uh, he, he also played Mr. Big in the Wayne's World uh, movie, so he oh. had a lot of he had a lot of clout in the industry, and he was good friends with Tommy Mottola, who was the president of Sony Records, who was married to Mariah, to Mariah Carey. Carey. Yeah, right. So he takes the idea to Tommy. He says, "Hey, what if we do a remake, you know, of uh, of um, Nielsen's Without You? That sounds good." Mariah Carey records it, and two years later, it's number one. So I, I kind of, I mean, I can't prove that it was because I, you know, because Frank DeLeo was in the room when, when I was at a meeting where I was saying, why don't we do Saints and Sinners lead singer, Noah, without you. I, I'd like to think that I kind of, that that's where we got the idea from. You, know, I, you can't say it's stolen because it's just an idea. I can't copyright it. But I, I, I kind of feel pretty sure that that's how Mariah Carey ended up recording that song because Frank DeLeo went to his buddy who goes to his wife and there you go. We're going to go with so, that version. Yeah, um, that. Have you heard it? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, if I mean, I mean, look, Mariah Carey can sing. It's not my no my style. I mean, I, she definitely has a vocal range. It's it's definitely. I mean, that's not who I would have thought of to record. I thought a guy like this lead singer for Saint and Sinners who had the look and actually did have the pipes. It's just that the band was crappy. Sure. I mean, he, he's, it's not it's not the first good singer for a crappy band that knows someone says let's take them single and forget these guys. So, but I was way you no know, led down the totem pole. I'm I'm the assistant, you know, to the you know, the East Coast promotion guy, and everyone knows that we're friends. That we were trying to do this, you know, uh, the syndicated radio show. So, I wasn't listened to, and then that's what happened. So that was my foray, you know, my my deep dive into the music industry, working at Savage Records, meeting David Bowie, giving an idea to Mariah Carey, meeting Frank DeLeo, and then watching the whole thing crumble. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. It, you, you know, you got to be known for something. Well, I mean, if, if you're going to fail, fail big. Fail I mean, big, we, we, man. We we did interview some some great artists. We had a lot of fun, you know, on, on the show. I mean, um, when I, I mentioned the David Lowry um, uh, interview, and of course, uh, Crackers, uh, their first big hit was "Know What the World Needs Now," and and one of the lines, you know, from that song is another Frank Sinatra. So my friend and I came up with an idea of this. We're playing, um, the first thing for that set was we played uh, David uh, Lowry's first band, Camper Van Beethoven. And, and, and they, they did a remake of the 60 song, Picsters of, Pictures of Matchstick Men. So this is our way sometimes of saying, these artists didn't just fall off the turnip truck. Some of them have been around, you just might not have heard them because they were smaller and, and more obscure. So we played Pictures of Matchstick Men, we then uh, know, uh, go. We we start playing parts of the interview, and we go into what the world needs now. And we and and we actually he mentioned about that thing about uh, about uh, the lyric about Frank Sinatra, and he thought that Frank Sinatra was, and his words were benign dictator. So we segue out of what the world needs now to hear actual Frank Sinatra about to sing my way, and then we segue into that into you no know, Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols doing his version now. Ray Grats. <laughs> nice. And that's and that was that segment. So that that's what the kind of you know things that we would think of that people go, wow, this is you no, know, this is really interesting. 
So, but that was, you know, it was just three months. It sounds a lot longer when I, when I talk about it, but uh, no, three months, that was fascinating. I mean, I, I, was, I was living in a, an apartment in Queens over a fish market uh, with no air conditioning. Nice. And so, I mean, nice. I, I mean, that, that was, that was my, my, uh, my New York life then. Yeah. Well, ultimately, you ended up in the film industry. So you kind of bounced from from radio to record, well, from wrestling to radio to record, and and then you ended up somehow saying, "Fuck it, I'm going to be a filmmaker." <laughs> well, after the end, after that ended, I said, "What now?" And I decided, I I said, "I think I'm going to try film." Yeah. So I actually moved back to Atlanta because I left my dog there. I mean, I thought the show was going to be big. and I was going to actually be able to get a house in, in you know, suburban New Jersey with a fancy yard. So I moved back to Atlanta no, no, because my dog. I actually go back to working with WCW, the worst job ever. I mean, my job then was to actually uh, do, uh, do dubbings of the, the three syndicated shows. So that was working all night Friday, all night Saturday, you know, putting hundreds and hundreds just – Loading up, no, here's the master tape, putting it up, putting all the tapes that it's going to dub onto, labeling it, and I'd be up all night Friday, all night Saturday, and sometimes part of Sunday, no, doing it. But I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. How do you be a filmmaker? So I go to the library, and I look. There's not that many books about filmmaking, but I found one called Feature Filmmaking at Used Car Prices by a guy named Rick Schmidt. I've read this book. You've read the book? I do. I own it. And so, well, I, I read the book. I said, this is fascinating. But since I'm not as, you know, as you found out as we were trying to figure out how I can do Skype with you, <laughs> I'm not the most uh, you know, technical guy in the world. I said, I, I, I think I can understand writing and directing. I'm never going to be good at the technical thing about, about it as far as setting up shots and then lighting. I said, what do I do now? So I tracked down Rick Schmidt, who was living in Port Townsend, Washington. Right by where I'm at. Where, yeah, so I actually call him up and he says, well, it's funny you should call. I was actually thinking of doing something, taking my book and making like a, a seminar of feature filmmaking at Used Car Prices Seminar where people like you who've never know, uh, directed or produced a film before, you and a whole bunch of other you know, newbies can get together and you'll each put in a little bit of money. It'll cost you each a lot less than it would to do your own film. So I decide I'll do that. So I, so he's about to make a film with me and four other filmmakers who we've never met. So I, I work all night Friday, all night Saturday, leave no Sunday, take three flights, rent a car from Seattle, drive a couple hours to Port Townsend, which is, as you know, is, is about an hour or two from, from Seattle. Yep. So I haven't slept in like 24 hours and we're on set at 10 a.m. Now, we all meet at this restaurant for breakfast. We're on set. Now, Rick Schmidt has never done scripts. Everything is improv. Uh, before all of us, all five of us, no, uh, no supposed no uh, writer, producer, directors came up with some ideas, and all he did, uh, he secured a, a really uh, top-notch cinematographer, uh, some locations, and some non-actors to be in it. We and we just start shooting, and it's you just start figuring out what the film is going to be as he's shooting it. So we shot for uh, for five days. I uh, did some rudimentary editing for five days. This was on 16 millimeter. So uh, no editing on 16 millimeter. I found out one day is totally to sync up no, the sound with film. The whole idea of the clapboard. The whole clapboard. That's an entire yeah. day no, to do that. So after 10 days, everyone got a rough cut you know, of, of what this film was going to be. The other four directors thanked Rick. Yeah, great experience. And I talked to Rick and said, we have a film here. There's something really here, but we need to re-edit. We need to do some more editing. So he took all the footage and dubbed it down know, to VHS because now I'm a tape dubber at WCW. I have access to all this equipment. 
So Rick and I talking on the phone, long distance, me in Atlanta and him in Port Townsend, Washington, kept on talking about what, how the scenes, because there's no real linear parts of this film, uh, especially with one device that Rick has always done, which is to incorporate what he calls real life stories. So it could be cast, it could be crew, it could be a stranger we meet. We just say, put him on camera for closes, tell a five minute real life story about yourself. It could be happy, it could be sad, it could be funny, it could be quirky, whatever. So you, those have to figure out some way to incorporate them in the film so it actually makes sense in the narrative. And this is where Rick is a genius. He's a genius editor. So we're going back and forth and every time one of us or both of us have an idea, I, make, I cut that film onto VHS and send it to him so he can look at it and I can look at it. Finally, he has this aha moment, the one sticking point in the film. He figures out it works. Now, no, we go to the lab to actually make an answer print, start making copies of that, and send it to film festivals. It starts getting to film festivals all over the place. I mean, and some of the good ones will actually fly you there. Like, we got to fly to Portugal for this really prestigious uh, film festival called Figueira de Foz, which is uh, north of... Um, of uh, Lisbon and just south of Oporto, a really cool seaside um, you know, village. And we, we got into slam dance, it was only its, its second year and it's just starting to gain no, notoriety. We were in the, uh, the Pacific Northwest Film Festival. So my first film is getting in all these film festivals. Um, it also got into IFFM, the independent feature film market at New York, uh, New York City, which played at the Angelica, you know, one of the classic um, art house uh, yeah. theaters in the country. <laughs> They take films as work in progresses there too. So we first submitted it as a work in progress. I, I think I mentioned this to you. While we're there, only Rick and I went. The other four directors, you no know, producers, they loved the experience and that was it. But you know, Rick and I have been working on this film for a year. So he and I are attending these festivals. We attend IFFM there. And Kevin Smith is there for his first film, Clerks. Mm -hmm. And so you have, a, you have a screening, and uh, all the people who are in the industry, whether they're from a film festival, they will have badges so you can identify who they are. All the filmmakers have badges. And every time people go into a screening, there's a person with IFM FM there with a clipboard to find out who is there, who was represented, because not everyone will stay for the entire film to leave for whatever. They didn't like it or they have another film that starts. So... Our film, Blues for the Avatar, we look afterwards and we had a who's who of, of reps. And, 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 and a couple of them actually, if they really like your film, they'll wait to talk to you. So uh, the, the, one of the reps from the Berlin Film Festival, one of the most prestigious film festivals in Europe, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's like Sundance is here. That can make you. You, can, you get distributors who want to pick up your film. Sure. Because Europe is a lot, a lot more, they, they like a lot more of the art house films than we did here back in 1994, 95. But so we met a couple of the reps and then we're looking down the list. There's, there's reps from, um, from Sundance, from Florence, from, from Vienna, from the Museum of Modern Art, uh, new directors, new film series. So we're getting this who's who and then Kevin Smith only had one rep there and that was from Sundance. He gets into Sundance. We ended up not getting into any of those really prestigious film festivals <laughs> that had reps there. He gets into Sundance, wins the audience award, you know, gets a deal with Miramax, and Kevin Smith is made. Right. We got into a lot of really, really you know, cool festivals, none that, have, you know, the, none that have the industry there. I mean, at that time, <clears throat> Slamdance was cool because it was at the same time as Sundance. So people, you know, the whole idea of that was – Everyone in the industry is in Park City, Utah. So if they're there for a Sundance, they may come to our festival. Sure. 
And now if you go to Park City, Utah in January, you know, as, as soon as, as if we don't have a quarantine, <laughs> every single person in the entertainment industry is there. I mean, actors, directors, distributors, other film festivals, people have no business being there because they don't have a, a film. But I mean, the cast of Saturday Night Live would always be there because you have to be there. Right. So the funny thing is you'll have someone driving up and down Main Street of Park City with a van saying, hey, I got a film in here. Want to see it? You know, there'll be people projecting their films on the side of the building because all they need is that one person to, hmm, that's interesting. I, I want to talk to you about it. Yeah. So it was really fun to be at Slam Dance, and uh, the, the we we came in second for um, for best narrative feature, and uh, the film that the, that won was a film called The Day Trippers, and and uh, the guy that directed that, um, uh, God, I, I forget his name. He also directed Superbad. Okay. Later, I mean, so he he became a big deal. So his first film, you no know, one, it was actually produced by Steven Soderbergh. So we had real actors in it. He had Hope Davis and Stanley Tucci and Leah Schreiber, and we had no-name actors from the poor towns in Washington area. <laughs> but so that was how, you know, one door, no shut, no close on me, and I decided, okay, what, no, what do I do? I'll, I'll be a filmmaker. And at some point so, down the road, then you, you made a couple of films, and you ended up encountering Lloyd Kaufman, famous, of course, for the trauma studios and and amazing movies like the toxic avenger and surf nazis must die and stuff like that so how did you encounter lloyd and what effect did that have on you well what happened was i i, I stopped doing the, the, the tape dumping job because it was because weekends are a key time if you're going to try to make films and other people if they have nine to five jobs so uh i ran out of money and then i took the worst job i ever had which is a bill collector a friend <laughs> of mine on my um no, I play street hockey and we had a party afterwards. And then this one friend, no, just looks like a typical hockey player. He never, he, you could tell he wasn't that bright, but he has the party at his house. He lives in a freaking mansion and his next door neighbor is, is uh, uh, Vince, I forget his last name, Vince Johnson, who was at that time, the star linebacker for my team, the New England Patriots is living next to him because they have this, these gorgeous houses in Alpharetta, no, uh, Georgia, which is the night, one of the nicest suburbs of Atlanta. So I go, son of a bitch, how do you afford this? And he goes, you need a job, don't you? So he was a manager at a bill collection company. And so I got hired on as that. And I did it for one month. And I literally got physically ill during that job. It was the absolute most nightmare job I've ever had. And I lasted one month. I hated everything about it. But I made a film about it. Okay. I decided this is a this is too good a uh, thing not to make a film out of. It's the only film I've actually ever scripted because all the other films are have been you know, Richmond's improv. So I wrote a film that was actually a a full length feature, but I knew I wouldn't have enough money or time to do that. So I actually wrote it as a thirty minute short. And then some for some uh, some luck, my dad had a, a an insurance policy. He didn't need any more liquidated, and said, "Okay, Barry, I'm going to give you this money, thirteen thousand dollars. I have money to make the film." So I, the first person I approached was Mick Foley, you know, who I knew from wrestling, and he, is, he was just about to leave to go to the WWF. You know, they, WCW never used him right. He wasn't a big star there. He was a big star in Japan, but not in the States. But he's about to go to WWF, where he would become a big star there. But I had him for three days before he went there. 
I hired a local production company. So I had everyone. I had gaffers. I had script supervisors. I had a half ton truck of all the toys, you know, dollies, everything. Cause I had money. I had craft services. I had catering. I had Mick Foley. And then uh, for uh, my co-star, uh, my, my lead actress, I hired a local girl who I had met. I had taken a cinematography class in, uh, in Atlanta. And, and the girl that was uh, for the scene we shot was this girl named Melissa McBride. Who now so, we know as, of course, Carol from Carol The Walking Dead. Carol The Walking Dead. This, Crazy. this is the mid-90s, right? So I make this, you know, this, this professionally done film. It looks good because I have actually real people, real, you know, real cameras, real lights, real uh, no pros, and no doing all that. So I make this 30-minute film about, about my horrible experience you know, uh, as a bill collector. Uh, Mick played a guy who was actually based on a guy I met there. He was in jail for 14 years for manslaughter. Got out, got a job as a bill collector, and loved it because he says, I'm, I'm more of a criminal now than I ever was. But this is actually legal. I said, I am just destroying people left and right, you no, know, every single day, making a crap load of money and, and, and getting an attaboy. Yeah. So he was based on my lead character, but I didn't want to make him totally horrible. So I thought Mick could play this guy where, yeah, he's kind of a scumbag. But you're, you're going to kind of like it. Because I figured you can't totally dislike your main character. So I, I shoot this film in, in three days. Uh, the production company also had editing facilities. So, so uh, no, they edit, and I get my 30-minute no, short film. And I uh, once again, I'm, I'm entering in film festivals. And one of the film festivals that I entered in, because they didn't have a, a fee, was uh, Troma Dance. So I entered into Troma Dance, and once again, no, I, I'm out to um, no, the, the, the Park City because Troma Dance is there the same time as Sun Dance and Slam Dance and Slam Dunk and Moon Dance and No Dance and Pull Down Your Pants Dance. <laughs> uh, so, so there's Troma Dance. So out of this uh, Troma Dance, um, they, they create a, a compilation DVD called The Best of Troma Dance Volume 1. And they use deadbeats on the cover because even though some of the other films had some known people like Klaus uh, Nokinski, who was a big time no, no actor from years ago, but no one would, would have known today. So Mick was obviously uh, started the WDF and he started to become a big deal. So that's what attracted trauma, no, uh, trauma to this film because they said, wow, uh, our, well, you mentioned some of the films, Toxic Avengers, Surf Nights Must Die. They figured their audience and the wrestling audience is a good Venn diagram. Yeah, they, they, it's the same people, so that's why they accepted us into Trauma Dance, and that's why they put it on uh, on the cover of the Best of Trauma Dance Volume One, and the thing sold tens of thousands of units. Now, because it was a short film, and because it's Lloyd Kaufman, you no, know, I really like Lloyd Kaufman. He's extremely honest. He says, "Barry, you're not going to make any money from this." He says, "This is going to be a 10% net deal." That means that you're going to get 10% net after I deduct all my expenses. And guess what? I'm going to have a shitload of expenses. So no matter how many no, units it sells, you're not going to make anything. And he did not lie. He, I got a check for $2.43. No, after one year of it being on the market, they wrote my name wrong on the check. They put it Norman with a D. Nice. So of course, so of course I didn't cash it. No, I, I, I immediately laminated it. So this is the you know, indie filmmakers. No, this, this is what we live for. Yeah. And then a few years ago, I called Lloyd Coffin up again and says, hey, guess what? My, my second co-star... Uh, in, 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 in Dead Beats is now a bigger star than the first. And then I said, it's Melissa McBride. I said, oh, shit. So then they, they release it on video on demand. Once again, it made a crap load of money, and I haven't seen a nickel of that. You didn't even get $2.43? 
I didn't even get my, you know, like my, my you know, if, if you remember the, the John Cusack movie, Better Off Dead, where the, where the paper boys chase him, I want my $2! My two, well, that's been me ever since. Nice. But I can't get mad because uh, it, it's a thing on the internet now. Every now and again when I'm feeling worthless, I will Google Dead Beast Melissa McBride. I find Facebook pages and other sites dedicated to it where they've actually done screenshots, transcribed the dialogue on it. Um, it's been pirated all over the world. It's been seen everywhere. It's been reviewed everywhere. The reviews have never been good. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I will say I, I actually get kind of trashed in the film. Yeah. Now, now I, I will say this. Uh, you know, just like I think I got a hit from Mariah Carey, I think I also helped uh, get a scene in the film Out of Sight. Uh, that was the George Clooney, uh, Jennifer Lopez movie that was based on an Elmore Leonard book. Okay. The first scene of Deadbeats, which I think was my, was my most clever scene, is I had Mick Foley uh, uh, in the bushes with, uh, in his car with binoculars looking at a fast food restaurant. And then he sees this big, black, muscular guy walk into the restaurant. So he goes around to the drive-thru, and he talks to the drive-thru guy. says, see that big black guy in your restaurant? He goes, yeah, well, that's my partner. He's going to kill you unless you give me all the money. Oh, yeah, and I throw in a couple of Polish dogs, too. So that's the opening of Deadbeats. He gets caught by the police. I know we, we, we put the bubble gum machine on the back of the car, so it looks like it's behind it. Uh, so that's, you know, the next scene is he's talking to his probation officer who says, hey, maybe you ought to get a job as a bill collector. And then there's millions of those jobs. So that's the start of the movie. In Out of Sight, I read the Elmore Lennon book, and the movie is exactly like the book, scene for scene, except there's one scene where George Clooney goes into a bank, goes to a teller and says, see your bank president sitting at that table there? He goes, yeah. Goes, well, the, the, the guy next to him was my partner, and he's going to shoot him unless you give me all your money. So I, I, I then found out when I went to, you know, after um, I went to IMDb to check all the production credits to see if there's any crew from my film, because all the people I said who worked in my film were professionals. You know, they were the people that anytime there's something TV or film shooting in Atlanta, they could get called because they were, you know, that they, they, they had the reputation. There was some crossover. So I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know if they saw Deadbeats or saw one of the people that worked as a crew of mine said, hey, we have an idea, we have, you're lo looking for a scene. I mean, usually production people don't have that type of, hey, I have an idea. It does seem suspicious that my film which came out first and the one scene in that movie that was not in the book, that was similar. So if nothing else, I once again, just like getting a number one hit song from Mariah Carey, I go, <laughs> okay, I'm a good enough writer that I can at least write one scene in, in a big Hollywood film. Awesome. Well, and then after all of that, you decide, I haven't done enough. I need to write some books. <laughs> I need to write some books. Well, that's what I, mean. I after I, I went and got a master's degree in, uh, in film studies because I decided I, I, I skipped over one step. I actually created a film festival in, uh, in Georgia. First in Dahlonega, Georgia, and then I moved it to Rome, Georgia, when, when the, the, some neo-Nazis in the National Alliance started threatening my life. That wasn't the only reason I moved it, but I moved it to Rome, Georgia, and it became one of the most successful film festivals you know, uh, in, in the Southeast. Now, it, it takes, even though it's only four days a year, it's, it's a year-round gig, and often I'm working 40, 50 hours you know, a week doing that while I'm trying to do my regular job, which at that time was working for Cartoon Network. So I decided I need to be paid as an executive director because I know I, I founded it, I, I ran it, it's doing really well, and I knew that Rome, Georgia didn't have the money to pay my position. And since almost all film festivals are nonprofit, they only hire people with master's degrees. 
So I go back to school you know, at Boston University, get my master's degree in film studies, and, this, and that ends in 2009 when the economy crashes. So a lot of film festivals are hurting. I got three interviews with film festivals to be an executive director. All three ended up hiring someone local who came from another nonprofit, had no film festival or filmmaker, film anything with, uh, with indie filmmaking, but they thought that they would bring their sponsors with them, which is not a thing. There's no sponsors spending all this money uh, on this nonprofit, but I like you so much, wherever you go, the money will go. So when that didn't pan out, I said, I want to stay in indie film. What can I do? And I decided to buy a movie theater. Oh. So I'm looking, uh, once again, there's websites for everything. You want to buy a movie theater, there, there's an app for that. So I'm looking at, at, uh, at theaters all over the country, and I find one in Brunswick, Maine, which is not that far from, from Boston. All the other ones were everywhere. I mean, Oregon, uh, um, Ohio. So that one, it, it was also profitable, which a lot of the other ones weren't. So I own, I buy this little art house single screen movie theater. And while I'm running that, uh, that's when the, the idea comes to me is, and actually, it really wasn't, I don't really know how it started. I mean, just like the way uh, Rich Mitt and I know, mostly him, because he'd been doing it before uh, me, we started making films with uh, the whole improv. I started one day, just started writing. You know, I just, I mean, I, I'm at my theater like six o'clock in the morning because I do a lot of my best work when, when it's quiet and there's nothing there. And that's when I can look at all the other films that are out there and what I can possibly get and, and how my schedule is looking. And I just started typing one day. And once again, a stream of consciousness started coming as, as far as basically my life story up to now. It was uh, just before my 59th birthday. Uh, so this is, I'm going to be 63 this year. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I own this theater, which is great. The only family I have, I have left, I, I lost my sister and father within six months of each other, you know, uh, two years prior. And um, that was all, my, my only family is my dog, who's now, you know, he's, he's at that point, he was 15, 15 and a half. He was diabetic and blind. And I knew what was going on there. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm not married. I have no kids. I have no family. What the hell? I mean, the, the, the talking heads line, how do I get here? <laughs> so that's, that was the origin of my first book, Flipping Point. And here I am. I, I mean, I love running a movie theater, but there's so many other parts of my life that are kind of weird. And then things like some of the things we talked about, uh, working the music business, becoming a filmmaker, and then things from my childhood start coming up. So I just started writing this thing and it starts jumping all over the timeline. In other words, I didn't prep out how I'm going to write it. I didn't know chapters, parts of my life. Whatever my brain thought of at that the time I'm writing, that's the story I came out. So it, it'll go up and down in the timeline. And then when it was all done, I had this book that I decided I, I really wanted to call it Tipping Point, but that, that name was taken. So I came, I said, well, Flipping Point works too, because that's what I, I felt I was reaching this point. I mean, even though I've, I've had, I've, I've done almost everything I ever imagined I ever wanted to do. I mean, I, 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 it's not like when I was a kid, I said, I want to be in the music business. I want to work in television. I mean, besides working for, you know, uh, for CNN and, and WCW and Cartoon Network, I worked for six Olympic games. And, you know, one of my dreams was always to be in the Olympics. Failing that, I got to work for six of them, you know, four of them overseas. And that was an incredible experience. So I've, I've had these incredible experiences in my work life. My personal life has, has been kind of sketchy. So those <laughs> things started kind of, well, look, when you're, when you're my age and you're not married, you don't have kids, you, you, you kind of wonder, what the hell? What did I do wrong? Where, where is this going? Why? How did I, how did I get here? So that's where Flipping Point came out. And it's, I just started writing until one day I just said, that's it. I've written everything I want to wrote because the end catches up where the beginning was. Here I am. 
do I have any answers? No. Um, and then people after you know the, the book came out, uh, the, the one question people always ask when they read it is, wow, that must have been really, really cathartic for you to write. And the answer to that is no, because it's forcing me to relive any trauma, <laughs> you know, any horrible. I mean, yes, the good stuff is there, too. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's, it was great. Even though the, the, uh, the syndicated radio show ended and Savage Records ended and my gig at WCW ended, even though all these things ended, I, they were opportunities that came. I saw, I, I took a shot at them. Some worked out great, some didn't. Even the ones that didn't work out, I was so grateful for the opportunity. But there's other parts of my life like, what the hell? Right. So that became that became flipping point. Yeah. And and it was just interesting to get it out there. Though the local bookstore in Brunswick, Maine, you know, carried it. So a lot of my uh, customers, I, I you know, I promoted through my theater. So a lot of people you know, bought the book there. Um, it, it sold other places. I, I promoted on on my Facebook thing for where I went to high school. So a lot of high school uh, people I went to high school wanted to see if they were in it. You know, uh, some of them are, and they're not happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did not write it to settle scores. You know, right. I, I, I wasn't I wasn't trashing people, but yeah, when 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 shit happened in my life, I I, I talked about it. And it wasn't like you did this horrible thing to me. It's like these these horrible things happen, and and it was always trying to figure out what was my involvement in it you know, what did i do could i have done anything different why did this happen? i mean it's i think it's like what everyone tried when you reach a certain age and you realize you're closer to the ending than the beginning you do want to kind of figure out where did i where did things screw up i mean like i said I, i'm really happy about a lot of how my life has gone like i said i can die tomorrow saying i i did a lot of things i never thought i would have done yeah i i've i've loved obviously the arts i i like you know the creativity i always wanted to work you know, when I was a kid, I had no idea how to, I mean, I love going to films. I you know I, television was always a big deal growing up in the 60s. I wanted to work for those things. I didn't know how to do it. So I ended up doing other things like selling advertising, which was very, very lucrative, but I freaking hated it. Yeah. So, so flipping point was, you know, uh, was just me writing, trying to get things out, trying to figure out why, you know, okay, this good stuff happened, this bad stuff happened. How does it all blend together? And just from there, I just started writing you no know, books after that. Uh, I, I wrote a book a, a couple years after that that just concentrated on my childhood, which I think ends when you end high school. Okay. So that book I named The Angriest Childhood in the World. <laughs> <laughs> let's just not screw around because I did have a miserable, miserable childhood. Oh, shitty, dude. So that well, look. I mean, as I mean, Nietzsche. That was just not destroying me. Makes me write a book about it. Yeah, um, there you go. So that's what that's what that book. So that book is linear because obviously, if you it doesn't make sense to jump around to, to age four to twelve when when your life is up to fifty nine, you can do it. I mean, I I wrote about my two marriages go back and forth in the book. Uh, so if you're reading it, flipping point, it's not going to be linear. But I think it actually makes more sense writing about your childhood. It does make sense. And I've written just in this past year, I've written two more books and one play. I've never written a, never written a play before. I, uh, I was watching Viceland and uh, they, they have a show called you know, The Dark Side about the dark side of wrestling. So having worked in pro wrestling, even though I, I mean, people all think I must be the biggest fan of wrestling. I'm not. I do think it's fascinating. And obviously I worked in there, so I, I, I have a lot of insider knowledge. And it was about one of the most famous incidents called the Montreal Screwjob. Now, people who aren't uh, familiar with that, but that was um, 
Brett the Hitman Hart was one of uh, Vince McMahon, WWF's biggest stars. Had been there for 13 years. Uh, the year before uh, Vince signed him to this huge, huge contract, which he doesn't do. I mean, uh, the WWE is like football. He will sign into a big contract, but he can terminate it. Right. And, and, and you're mostly getting paid on percentages. In other words, if you're one of the top stars and you're the headliner for WrestleMania, you're going to get a bigger percentage than a lower star. Same with TV, same with syndication, same with pay-per-view. It also means that nobody takes a day off because they're injured. Yeah. Because if you're injured and you're not going to be on the car, you're not going to make money. So that's why you know, you know people in WWE uh, just get horribly injured because they never take a day off because it's in their best interest not to. So Bret Hart, well, no, he signed this huge contract, and then things aren't going for, very well for Vince in the WWF, and he wants, to, you know, he decides that you know, he he signed this huge contract with Bret too premature. Bret Starr is on the wane; he can't you know it's going to break his company, so he wants Bret to leave. So Brad says, okay, and WCW uh, starts courting him, and they are going to sign him to a big contract. So now they have to end his run at the WWF. And Brett was very, very, uh, I mean, he, his character was something that he felt he developed over the years. And Vince wanted him to lose the belt in Canada, which Brett is from. And he goes, no way, I'm not going to lose in my home country. He says, that, that's going to hurt my character going into WCW. You can't do that. This is the way I want to do it. I will drop the belt eventually. We'll do it this way. And Vince said, okay, we'll do it that way. So they have the match in, in Calgary, and everything is going to script. And then all of a sudden, uh, no, uh, Shawn Michaels, who was the opponent, he gets you no know, Brett in a pinning position, and Brett thinks he's going to kick out of it. The referee, one, two, three. That's it. You lose. Oh, I fucked him. So Brett, yeah, Brett is absolutely livid. And there's cameras that showed him afterwards just screaming at Vince. He he punches them out. So they call this the Montreal Screwjob. And I decided this thing is as Shakespearean as it gets. I mean, you have betrayal. You have a king. I mean, Vince McMahon is the the king of of this fiefdom. You have an ethical you no know, quandary because it's who is right? Is Vince Rice says no? It's my promotion. You became big because I gave you the opportunity to do so. Brett says I'm the star. I'm the reason I put button seats for your promotion. It was my hard work, my putting my body on the line, my developing this persona. So to me, if that's all the makings of a great, you know, where there's going to be lots of dialogues and monologues of each one. You know, making their case as to, and I wrote it all in Shakespearean language. So I'm, I'm still trying to see. I mean, obviously nothing's happening on Broadway, nothing's being produced, but I'm trying to get some of my old wrestling friends, you know, uh, who are st- big stars, even though ret- they're they're retired or semi-retired, attached. Just like in a film, if you get a major guy attached to it, it's going to attract other people. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. if I get, yeah, so if I get Sting or God for no, God help me if I can get in like no The Rock, who obviously is a no, a, a, a huge star, because I don't know how many uh, wrestlers could actually do the dialogue. <laughs> I mean, because it's huge chunks of monologues, you know, in Shakespearean language, they have to just sit and just that. It's not easy to do. No. So he might do it because obviously he's you no, know, he does have to <clears throat> memorize big hunks of dialogue, you know, for his films. And Sting is actually, he's done some acting. So those are like two of the people. And Mick Foley, so the three people I have in mind would be those three because they actually have some acting chops. They have the brain that can do it. So we'll see. I mean, I, I'm, I've been 
trying to get in touch with some of these guys and see what happens. And, and maybe, you know, since the XFL is, is done, that was Vince McMahon's thing. And wrestling is obviously doing horribly because of what's of, going on. Exactly. Maybe when things open up, he can be convinced to produce this, even though he, I don't totally rip on him because I, I actually try to show his point of view. No, so, I mean, I don't make him the total bad guy. He has an ending monologue where I think I present the point of view of, hey, you know, no, it's no, so it's my promotion. I have the right to determine what happens to the guys that I know that I'm paying, how they're going to go out if they're if they're going out. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I never wrote a play before. This just seemed to, once again, it just kind of wrote itself. I, I, I read every Shakespeare play I could to try to get into the iambic pentameter. And, uh, and the verbiage, and there's some great verbs, like one of my favorite insults that I got that I use in a play is clot pole. You clot pole. <laughs> that's, that's just, that's, I, I like that word, right? Yeah. Are you going to use it in your everyday lexicon though? That's the real question. You walk around calling people clot poles. Well, I, I keep on thinking of, of Mean Girls. Well, let, let know. fetch is never going to happen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. So I have a funny feeling if I try to make clot pole happen, it's not going to happen, but well, okay. Look, we use it here. You have you have people that watch and listen. Maybe clot pole will become a thing. Hey, so, you never know. One day you could be watching a George Clooney movie, and all of a sudden he's got a scene in there with clot pole, and you could say, "Motherfucker, you did me once." <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but put it this way: at least at least uh, with an audience of well now too. So if you ever hear George Clooney say clot pole, you you know I know where he got that. From. I'm calling him. I'm calling him up. <laughs> So, <laughs> get us both on your podcast right. so we can finally duke it out damn you cloney you're stealing all my good shit it'd be like a celebrity fight club oh i wouldn't <laughs> no i wouldn't <laughs> so you've done some some books and now you wrote a play and things just kind of keep moving along what is next what can we expect to see or hear from you in the near future well, I, I do have, I, I would like to make at least one more film. Now, uh, even if things were open now, it's, I, I don't want to be the filmmaker that just shoots it on a phone. I still want it to be professionally done. So even the cheapest film that I can make is still going to cost money. Right. Uh, I mean, you, you still want audio sweetening. You want professional editing. You want all that stuff. And right now, I mean, my, you know, like everyone else, my, my investments took a huge hit. I'm not working. I, I do have at least one more film in me. Uh, you know, Rick Schmidt, we've made four films together. You know, the feature filmmaker at Used Car Prices, my mentor that got me in it. We've been talking about another possible film together. Um, so I would like one more film. As far as any other arts, I mean, if, if I get this play moving, that'll be one more art form. I mean, it's, it's one thing to write it. I, I would like to see it done, even if it's at some local theater. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if there's any other entity out there, any art form. I mean, I just will probably go back to either writing another book or hopefully making another film. Now, do you have a project that's currently in crowdfunding status? Yes, I, I have. Uh, like I said, I, I wrote uh, um, two, uh, two books you know, last year. I, I have a book. Once again, it's, it's going to be the third book in the trilogy that I wrote about myself. Okay. Um, it takes place uh, in the seven years I lived in Denver. Um, after I graduated college, uh, I went to NYU for a magazine publishing procedures uh, certification for the summer because I wanted to work in the magazine industry. And I ended up homeless for a few weeks, you know, living on a park bench in, in New York City, got an interview with the largest magazine distributor in the world, and ended up moving to Denver, getting a job with a three-state territory, you know, company car and expense account. 
And so my, my 20s were spent in Denver, or uh, no, from, from 21, 22 to 29. And there's some symmetry because uh, my best friend in college is the one that got me interested in magazines because he got me working for the school newspaper. That's in flipping point. Once again, a weird thing. I passed his room in the middle of the night because uh, I had to go to the bathroom. His door was open. He called me in. He says, hey, maybe you can give, give me some hand on the school newspaper. What do you think? I ended up working with a school newspaper, love that, you know, caught on to his uh, love of magazines, decided that's what I want to do. So then I ended up in Denver, got married, divorced, had all kinds of very, very, you know, really, really great. I thought they were my salad days because once again, you're in your 20s. Denver was a great place to be uh, you know, uh, from 79 to 86, uh, except for one thing. Uh, in 1980s, when the movie Urban Cowboy came out, and all of a sudden Denver raised, hey, we're in the West. And every bar became a country bar, and everyone had you know, the mechanical bull. And if you wanted to get laid, you had a, knew how to country swing, you had to ride the goddamn bull. <laughs> but that, that's what I wrote uh, the delightful Denver doldrums about. Uh, like some other weird things happened. Uh, my first girlfriend, uh, uh, when I moved to Denver, committed suicide and named me a note. Oh. And then I, and I found that out when her mother called me. Oh man! I mean, she, so that, that's, I mean, I mean, I, I broke up with her because I, I mean, I, I met her. She was like seven years older than me, and she had a, a no, a ten-year-old kid. She got married really, really young, had this child really, really young, and her husband was serving in Vietnam. He had done three tours, had a chance to rotate back home, chose to do another tour, and she goes, "Hmm, he could go back to me and his son, his young son, or he could fight in Vietnam again." And that completely flipped her out. They got divorced. So when, when we met, and I'm 22, just moved to Denver, and she wants a father for her son, She wants, and I'm not ready for that. So I told her, I said, I, 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 this isn't what I want. It's not what I, I can't do this right now. I'm not the right guy for you. So I, I thought then, and I still think now, that that was the right thing. And that was, I got mentioned in the note. Um, years later, another thing, I won't go too much detail, because I want people to actually, since you mentioned the crowdfunding, which I am grateful for, and I want people to help me with that, and then buy the book, is I, I actually was involved in a plot to kill someone. <laughs> uh, uh, well, this guy, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not proud of it, and if there's any bad karma in my life, you know, where I wrote Flipping Point, I can certainly point a finger to that, that I actually agreed with this yuppie from hell guy that I met, this plot to kill this guy. This guy was a complete and total scumbag, but that doesn't mean, oh, you can kill him. Right. Um, so, so, so that's it. So it was seven interesting years of my life and the book ends kind of where it begins. Um, uh, I, I mentioned my, my, my best friend who I, I pass his room uh, in my dorm and I work for the school newspaper. Um, Anyway, anyway, we ended up living off campus with my girlfriend at the time. My college girlfriend was two years younger. She was my first girlfriend. Uh, just before I became homeless, she's coming to New York to visit me before she goes to college to what I'm wearing here, Connecticut College. Hey. Uh, and she breaks up with me. You know, I think finally something good's going to happen because, you no, know, the, the, the course has ended. I don't have a job. My dad said, you can't come back home to Boston. I said, I paid for your college. I paid for the summer. Then you get a freaking job. Don't come home. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, the, the course is ended. This is when I ended up homeless. My girlfriend's coming. At least I'll see her and she breaks up with me. So then I get the job, moved to Denver, uh, decided, uh, you know, I get married, divorced, and that's when I decided I, I got to leave Denver. I'm going to move to Florida. I was working for the, the direct mail company in Denver and transferred to Florida. It was Florida where I read the ad in Rolling Stone. But as I'm moving, uh, you know, before I go to Florida, I want to stop and see my best friend who worked for the, who I got him a job for the same company that I was working for when I first moved to Denver, the, the magazine distribution job. 
I had lost touch with him. So every now and again, I would call directory information to try to find him. One day I get a uh, no, uh, you know, his name, uh, that match, and he always uses middle initial. So I match, uh, I get the name and I call the number up and a, and a woman answers. And I go, hi, I'm looking for, you know, for the, for this guy. And let me just give you his middle name. It's Exxon. I mean, how many people have that middle name? <laughs> there was a pause and the woman goes, Barry? I go, yes. It was my college girlfriend. They had gotten married. Crazy. Now, now once, once again, she's two years younger. My, my best friend and I, we lived in a house with her off campus. My friend and I go to New York City for the summer program. I get a job in Denver. I, he gets a job in Houston. So when did this thing <laughs> no, right. start to happen? I mean, it obviously happened while I, we were still in college together. Sure. So it kind of ends with you no, know, with with you know, with Catherine, you no know, breaking my heart. You no, know, my my best friend and I going getting this job. You no know, splitting up, me going to Denver, and then I find them in Texas before I go on to Florida. So it, there, there's a little bit of symmetry that bookends. You no, know, my seven years in Denver. So that's what it's about. And and, and I am. I mean, my my first two books, I've I gotten some interest in publishing, but I I did self-publish. And because money is a little bit lower now, that's why I decided to crowdfund. And this is obviously the worst time to crowdfund because nobody has money. Right. But uh, but but I, it is crowdfunding on GoFundMe. And like I said, the name of the book is Delightful Denver Doldrums. Even if I don't raise the money, I'm I'm going to do it because I you know, I, I have to see it out now. Sure. I mean, I, I already have the cover designed. Uh, it's already gone to, you know, I mean, so I have to see it. If, if any money comes in, great. Whatever it does is, is at least good, will defray some of the costs of self-publishing. If not, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So that's out there, like I said, the, uh, and uh, and for anyone who thinks I stole the name, I kind of did, uh, because we were talking <laughs> before that you no know, Kurt Vonnegut is you no know, one of our favorite authors because he has that type of you no know, that those spontaneous type prose. Well, Jack Kerouac is another one of my favorite authors, and he's obviously famous for spontaneous prose, and he wrote a short story just called The Denver Doldrums. So I, I, I thought I can't just steal that because why not? You can't do it. But I said, well, my years in Denver were kind of both. There's doldrums because of a couple of things I mentioned to you about, but there was a lot of great stuff. I mean, uh, I mean like I said, in your 70s and uh, I mean, in, in the you know, late 70s, early 80s in Denver when you're in your 20s. And so there was a lot of great stuff. So I said, okay, what if I call it the delightful Denver doldrums? I, okay, I borrowed it. I will wear my, my influences on my sleeve. I make no, I mean, so I, I tried I don't try to write like them because I've written, I've read so much Kerouac and I've read so much Hunter Thompson, another one of my favorite you know, writers, and I've read so much Vonnegut. Yeah, I mean, I they absolutely influence that type of writing. Sure. So that's uh, that's the style. You know, like I don't know how to do anything else. Same with filmmaking. It it just seems so natural to have you know just say you know action and whatever you're you in the situation we put you in. So if you're acting in one of these films, we're not going to tell you you're doing something else. The situation you're in is going to be different, so which means you're not really acting. Yeah, you're going to be you figuring out what you would do in this in this circumstance. So that's the same way I know I, I write. Although it is about me, I just it just goes and and however it goes, wherever it goes, that's where it goes. Yeah. Well, Barry, your life is nothing if not piles of interesting craziness. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think it was, it's, this has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate you uh, sharing 
all the cool stuff with me. I'm sure we could probably talk for nine more hours and just keep going and going and going, but uh, sadly, the clock at some point will run out. So uh, sometime in the near future, maybe we catch back up again on the show, kind of check in on you, kind of how things are going with the crowdfunding. All you guys out there in podcast land, go to the GoFundMe site. Throw millions of dollars <laughs> Barry's way. Uh, George Cleaning, I'm going to expect you to contribute to this as well. You know, just throwing that out there at you. So uh, anything else, Barry, you want to plug before I let you get on with your night? Uh, well, I do have one other book that I have written that I can't totally mention about. It is a biography of one of the professional wrestlers that I work with. He and I were friends for 31 years, and unfortunately, while writing the book, the friendship ended. Yes. Uh, it's why you, t- you try not to do – I mean, that's what happened with my best friend with the radio show. We were friends for 40 years, and because we didn't have a contract, things ended badly, and we tried to stay friends for a year after that, and it didn't work. There was just so much resentment, and that's what happened here. So he actually uh, you know, took you know, the, the book that I wrote and emailed it to another writer. Ugh. And, and I, the good news is I found out who that writer was, and I immediately copyrighted the book. I mean, this was not my plan. I mean, I was not trying to steal the book, but I spent a lot of time on it. So this is the first book I wrote about someone else who is a famous, you no know, professional wrestler. Uh, so that there's, hopefully there is a market for that. I wrote it so even if you don't like wrestling, if you read the book, you might want to read it um, anyway. I mean, it's, it's mostly about his childhood because that's the part he wanted to talk about the most. Yeah. And he does have a fascinating childhood. So that's coming out. Obviously, I'm not going to mention who he is or the name of the book, but that is a book that's also going to come out you no know, soon. Um, and, and like I said, if, if you if you decide that I'm interesting enough to have me on back and when when that book when I'm ready to talk about it, then I can go into more details about it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. that 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 one that there could be some interesting because he has a podcast that I actually set up for him and he trashed me. For three episodes straight on on the podcast that I named, I got his no the, the the guy that's helping him produce it. I came up with the music for it, and he used it to completely badmouth me. So, even when I'm ready to talk about the book, I'm not going to throw him under the bus. I, I I have no interest in doing that. I mean, he was a very very good friend. He did help me through a, a lot of very very tough times, uh, and it's just sad that it had to end because uh, when he asked me to write the book, I didn't want to do it just for this reason. Right. Uh, I mean, he had one writer to try it. That didn't work out. When he asked me, I, I put him on to a very good friend of mine who's a brilliant writer. It worked and worked and worked until it didn't. And then he said, come on, will you do it? And so I did it. Um, I, I think it's I, I think it's an interestingly you know, written book. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. And like I said, I'll, I'll, and it won't be long where I'm able to divulge more. I'm not trying to be coy because obviously if I could plug it, I would. I just don't want to do so now until... When the time is right, it it'll happen. But, when the time is right, it's happened. Yep. So what is the best way if people want to reach out to you, send you a howdy, find out more about what you do? How do they get a hold of you? Well, since I'm an old fart, I, I am on Facebook. I know. So <laughs> Barry Norman and my avatar is Malcolm McDowell in a clockwork orange. Nice. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah. So right, right. <laughs> also video well, my brothers. So that would be the easiest way. You know, in other words, I, I, the GoFundMe thing is, 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 is there. Uh, some other things. I mean, so that's, that's the easiest way for someone to find out more about what's going on and things like that. If they think I'm interesting, friend me. I haven't hit my 5,000 limit yet because – these days, with all the political discourse, for every friend you make, you end up losing two more. There you go. So <laughs> it's kind of good. A lot of them will kind of self-eliminate. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 there's that. I mean, I, I try not to do that on that. But it's it's kind of hard because things are really, really, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, very polarized. 
And I mean, I, I like it to, to, to connect with people I went to high school and college with and people if they're interested in my books or, or, or other things about me. Uh, obviously, I have a lot of people involved in film, a lot of other filmmakers, you know, actors, things like that. People, So you have that type of community. But 99% of what's on social media these days is so that's that's a thing so there you go well once you uh <laughs> once you get that new that new book ready to talk about let, let's uh, let's make that happen because i know who you're talking about and uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> let's just say some people get the inside scoop. Just saying, but yeah, I, I'm excited. Uh, I wanted to dig into that today, but we just couldn't make that happen. So we'll we'll do a follow up at some point. We'll dig into that. Uh, Barry, thank you so much for hanging out with me today on Misery Point Radio. Appreciate your time, and uh, good luck to you on all your projects, brother. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me on. It's been a blast. And of course, thanks to all of you everyone out there in the podcast wasteland for joining us for today's paranormal experience special shout out to steven joiner for blackmailing barry into coming on the show against his will don't worry barry steve gave me his word he wouldn't release those pictures well at least until the offers get high enough at which point i'm Odakut. don't forget that steve besides it's not like the stuff you're doing in those pictures is illegal in every state you'll be fine for a while anyways as always, if you like what I'm doing here on Misery Point Radio, please subscribe to the show on all the platforms, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, tune in and check out the show on Spoilerverse. That's www.spoilerverse.com slash miserypointradio. And do me the solid, follow the show on all of those social media platforms the Book of Faces, the Instagrams, the Tweety Twatty Place, and YouTube. So if you do that for me, I'll be forever grateful, and I'll talk to you next time on Misery Point Radio. Misery Point Radio.